When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Fright School. Are you ready? Class is in session. Welcome back to Fright School. Hello, Joe. How are you? <laughs> Hello, Joshua. I am okay. How are you? I'm I, I'm also doing okay. I had a dramatic pause because I was going to say, like, Fright School, you know, now home of former Weakest Link contestant, Joe. <laughs> Oh my god, we can finally talk about it. <laughs> I know we've been talking I mean, we we have been talking about it, you know, for a bit, you know, just cuz since, you know, obviously we knew that you were doing it. I knew you mm-hmm. knew. Um, but yeah, now it's been out and I just thought we would take just a few minutes here at the beginning before we get into our our discussion today. Um, just to talk about your experience, because I know lots of our friends, I'm sure, have questions, and people have probably reached out to you to talk about different things, and, um, you know, so I thought it would just be fun just to kind of break down the, you know, your experience a little bit. That way, it's kind of all here, and we could post it and say, listen, if you want to hear about The Weakest Link, you got to listen to Friends School. <laughs> it's, I'm only saying this once. <laughs> one time. Only saying it once. <laughs> one time. It's like um, the guy who plays Biff on Back to the Future, he has like a card that he carries with him when people like, when he meets people or they rec- he gets recognized, he like hands in the card and it was like, hi, yes, I am the actor Biff. No. And then like he just answers the most common questions. Um, I feel like that, I mean, I'm not there yet. I have, I do not have that kind of notoriety. Um, so yeah, so I actually, um, I auditioned, uh, last summer for like three different game shows all remotely. Um, I made it to the test for the, for Jeopardy. I auditioned for something for a producer for in, um, for a show that I don't remember the name of, but it was on GSN. Um, and then literally that day after, or like literally after the GSN audition, I get um, a message on Facebook from some casting producer who was like, oh my gosh, I saw that you host like socially distant trivia. Um, I'm casting a game show. I can't tell you what it is just yet, but it's going to be big would you like to audition? And so I was like, sure, why not? What else, you know, pandemic, what else am I going to do? And then I didn't know, uh, I knew right before our first like face-to-face phone call um, in terms of uh, Skype, what uh, that the audition itself, what I was going to, what show it was. 
And so, yeah, so I actually got cast for that GSN game show, but I declined it in order to hopefully get cast for The Weakest Link. And thankfully I did, because I got on The Weakest Link. Yeah. Yeah, it was nice. So we filmed, um, we taped it in September. Um, but I had to do like, you know, I had to like actually drive up to LA the weekend prior to get tested on, on site. Cause that was part of the studios, uh, COVID testing protocols. And it was the first time that I left my zip code in six months at the time. And, wow. um, James came with me and he actually stayed with me for uh, when I was up there and, um, yeah, the kind of the rest is all history. You know, I was there for like eight hours, seven, uh, eight, seven hours. Yeah, that was going to be, I was curious how long it takes them to film because I know some, some shows film several episodes a day or even like, you know, I know a lot of the talk shows do that, you know, where they kind of come in and they'll just do two or three shows on one day, uh, kind of get it out of the way. I think Wheel of Fortune does a lot mm-hmm. of their stuff. Um, you know, uh, Jeopardy, I think, also records uh, several shows in a day. Uh, so I was wondering if that was your experience or if really you're, you're, they recorded it all day, you know, or did you see other people coming and going that were also filming? Sure. So, um, I, they said that their intention was to film three episodes a day. Oh, okay. Um, I, um, I, the day that I came to set, uh, my call time was at 6.30 in the morning. So I went 6.30. And then they had us all, like, sign papers in, like, our cars. So they told, here, park in this area. And then um, they had us all sign papers in our cars. And then we all went in together and, you know security check all that stuff but it was it was like super overly covid safe yeah, you know protocols sure. and like two people at a time um <laughs> two people at a time in the uh in the uh, elevators and stuff on like opposite ends and all that stuff but um from the end when we got there there was like um there was like the meeting with the lawyers. Like they tell you they go over the official uh, gameplay rules and then the prizes and all that stuff. And what you can and can't say post and not post and how the rest of the day is going to go. And the, this was actually really cool. So they had, there were 12 of us in the room in this large conference room, all spaced out eight feet apart. And then there was a, um, there was like a large zoom meeting and like screens uh, in the center of the room because those people were coming in later in the day. Okay. So they just got the whole thing. Um, they just got the whole thing done and over with um, for the whole day instead of having to do separate meetings. Cause I, I don't know how it would, I don't know how they would have done it otherwise. Um, and then since we were first on set, we get in there and it was just right off to like wardrobe and, uh, we had to bring like five outfits and then they chose what would look better and, you know, diversity among, uh, uh, color diversity. So that way we're not all wearing the same color and stuff. And yeah. And then, and I, I didn't have my phone on me. They said, just leave your phone in your car, which I took to heart. So I couldn't check my time, <laughs> the time, the entire, <laughs> so I was like, you're just in a black hole all day. I know. Like to me, it was like, it was like 12 hours and it was 12 minutes. Like it was interchangeable. It wasn't until I actually left the studio and walked to my car that I was like, Oh shit, I've been in there for like eight hours. 
And then wow, the actual yeah, taping of it. Yeah, how oh, long did the actual taping take? Probably, if I had to guess, probably two and a half hours, maybe. Okay. Um, just the whole maybe day because maybe three. I had read, I've been, you know, following like uh, productions that have started back up with tele- television and movies and the, you know, everything is so slow because of COVID. Everything is taking this enormous amount of time. And every time, you know, a new character has to come in or leave or whatnot, it's just adding, you know, all these extra precautions and time. Uh, so I was curious if it was going to take, you know, the usual three or four hours to film the episode or were you really going to be there? Like it took eight hours to do the whole thing, but it sounds like it was just all the protocols and other kerfuffle. <laughs> oh yeah. Cause they, uh, if you, I uh, just thinking about that time, like they, um, uh, productions got cleared like late August, early September to to, to start again. Right. So they were probably trying to get as much as they could out and have, I mean, essentially content for the rest of the year done, yeah. at least for the game shows. Um, that studio, yeah. CBS studios is also where they filmed uh, dancing with the stars. Uh, so they, um, and they have like, they had to hire like a COVID safety officer. So there was a person there, but it was, it was really cool. Cause like I, I knew I was going to be in good hands from when we all got there and we, we're about to, they were about to start the meeting. Some production assistant was like, cause everyone brought their own mask and it's like, okay, you can take your mask off and here, we're going to give you your own KN95 masks um, that you'll use the rest of the day. And I was like, okay, so now they can say that they provided the proper equipment to everybody. Everyone had the, you know, equal chance of not being, of not getting it. Um <laughs> And it was very much like there was even some times where like people would be talking to each other on the set and they would be like within six feet. And then the voice would come over on the God mic and be like, you guys are too close. And those little things were, were, were really cool to see. Um, If only if it was, even if it was just like some security theater or whatever, at least it was like, it put me more at ease in, in, in my it being able to be there because like the entire when i was on set i didn't have my mask on so and i and once you were on set you didn't leave until you were um knocked off eliminated yeah wow yeah so um how was that experience so actually playing the game like um did did we did we pretty much see everything that's there or was there questions that get cut or there things that happened i mean i don't know how much you can and cannot say but just in the realm of whatever you could say is there any fun trivia or anything you could share about making the show that when you watched it live you were like oh well that's not how i thought that would look or blah blah or maybe it's exactly i don't know um that's such a good question because i when (laughs) when i watched it i was starting i started remembering things because it's been so long and so much has happened and so but the sense um, memory of it has to come back seeing it you know exactly and so there were things that happened and and for the most part the, the the for the most part the things that i thought they would keep they did keep some of the like quirky remarks that people made and you know the interactions with jane and stuff um they're, the judges are, like, really good about, um, they said, like, you know, if in the event that, like, Jane mispronounces a question or something like that to the point where, um, uh, to the point where um, it will, like, 
alter how you respond to the answer. Yeah. Like they would pull it and they'd start it. So they, there was a couple of those instances, um, but it was all, I was actually really impressed, like how seamless in the edit it was. Yeah. Um, and it honestly didn't take away anything from the game either. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so overall it was a good experience. You had fun. Yeah. Very good experience. I had fun. I actually went in there with a strategy. Um, it was, uh, I went in there with my, my strategy changed actually at, at the end of every round. So it was like the, before we started, it was like, okay, just don't be the first one to go home. And it's like, okay, then make sure that I, uh, make sure I last longer than these two contestants. Right. And now, <laughs> and it, I didn't really care about the money. Like the money is not, I didn't equate them as dollars. They were just like points to me. And it wasn't until right before the final round where I was like, oh shit, like I could win all this money. Yeah. But I had to it, yeah. I had to get out of that because my my mentality's always been and, and I've actually pulled this from uh watching a game another game show many years ago, was that you know, you walk in there with nothing you very well could leave there with nothing like you're it you stay the same the entire time so it's just a matter of you know just doing what you know how to do and if you don't know the answer you don't know the answer yeah yeah well you did <laughs> but, well i mean you only missed a few questions out of everybody i mean i think you did the best um obviously that's not how the game gets rewarded unfortunately mm-hmm. as we've all learned and uh there was some nice uh you know uh, noise for you on on the Twitter verse about being robbed. Joe was robbed. I guess Joe I was, was robbed. robbed. Um, you know, but I was robbed. Yeah, that's that's the thing. These people they they lacked the courage to go up against you, and that mm-hmm. must be a nice feeling. That in and of itself, having people know like that you did really really well, and you were obviously like the strongest competitor on the show, so you get to walk away with that. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. That, I'm the Ben de la creme of the weakest link. Right. There we go. <laughs> Only um, I didn't send myself home. Was there uh, any of the, any of the contestants that you enjoy? I, I, I know you said that you weren't really allowed to hang out. So was, was there any like talking after the show was done or before where you're like, Oh, these people are cool. So that's, so that was the strangest part of it is that the only people that I really talked to were the people who worked on the crew. Oh, and wow. I like made it a point to like address everybody by name. You know what I mean? Just like, because they were all like face shield, double masked and face shielded up. And LA had, you know, at the time was just starting to be the epicenter of the pandemic. And so, um, but like we each had our like own individual, like dressing areas where we, um, we're getting ready and we weren't allowed. They were like, you guys can't talk to each other and no one did. And I think everyone was just pretty nervous. Right. And then even in between takes, we were not allowed to talk to each other either. And then once I was done, so like when, by the time I got eliminated, you know, everyone, no one else was there. Like they had all left. (laughs) So I did my thing and then they ushered me out of the studio. Like there wasn't like a aftercare, (laughs) if you will, uh, for anything. But I think that's intentional too. So that way there isn't like, if, if there's any animosity between uh, contestants, they they don't have to worry about that. But that makes yeah, sense. So. Yeah, yeah. I've um, gone to I, a few tapings of shows, uh-huh. you know, mm-hmm. and I think they're all kind of like that. Like you know, they just want to clear everybody out and keep on moving because they're going to go and film another show, or you know, there's yeah. just a million things happening. So, 
And given I, um, the state of the world, it's not like even if you had been able to chat with people to be like, hey, let's go get lunch somewhere, or go have dinner somewhere, and be like, hey, go, good for us. We were on, you know, a show. You couldn't even do that. So, yeah. Really and that was, that was one of the hardest things about like being able to like visit LA and not being able to be like, okay, maybe I want to like unwind with a nice dinner. Yeah. <laughs> just like remind myself, like, oh, that's right. We're in a fucking pandemic. Yeah. And I can't yeah. just do that. But at the same time, I mean, you know, we, we saw uh, James and I. We celebrated, like you know, we picked up some um, something from our favorite uh, bakery in LA and brought it all the way home. And um, he made dinner when we got back to the house. And um, you know, it was nice. I it was it was it was a really fun time. I I felt like completely in control of my edit, or I felt like um, I felt like a. It sucks because it's like when you are like when you're from Guam and you're about to like have this kind of you know, be this person who's going to provide this kind of representation. You're just consciously aware that you want to make sure that you're, you know, representing your, where you're from and where we're from. Well, so, yeah, I thought that was very cool, you know, cause yeah. I mean, we're watching it and we're expe- obviously expecting you to be like, I'm from San Diego, but like you, you didn't. And I, which I thought was really awesome. I, I thought that was a really good, obviously it's true, you know? Yeah. Well, that's uh, the thing is that like, great, it's, it's totally great. true. Yeah. But it's, I was just like, cause in that moment, like when I was filling out the application, they're like, what's your hometown? And I'm like, oh, well, my hometown is this. Um, no, I mean, San Diego is definitely home, but like, if you, you know, you talk to my hometown and, and, and that's also like, a that's such a real thing for people who are born on Guam and then leave. And then, you know, when they come back, it's even though they have, uh, they've like made their lives in other places. Anytime you come back, it's always going home. Like it's right. always, it's always, um, there's very much a like you be- there. Like that was one thing when I was there. Um, and then I did have a, the one thing and I, and this is just, you know, I'm kind of spoiling this as an Easter egg for the people who are in the know, but, um, I decided that if I was to ever give out a joke answer, I would, uh, reference RuPaul's appearance on Weakest Link in the first season. Um, and, uh, when they did a celebrity, they did a celebrity Weakest Link and then RuPaul gets asked a question. She doesn't know the answer and she just says, Shaka Khan. <laughs> so I was like... <laughs> I was like, I'm going to do that. And so I, I, I got a chance to do it. And I remember thinking like, well, if anything else, I did exactly what I said I was going to do. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I thought that was hilarious. Obviously I think it was confusing probably to some <laughs> people, uh, the straight audience, uh, I'm sure it was probably, like <laughs> no, I mean, I, you know, I'm sure lots of people are kind of, you know, but I thought it was hilarious. I think we were all, everybody that, kind of knows you was like that was freaking brilliant yeah um you know if you're gonna be wrong you might as well be fun wrong <laughs> exactly i was like i might as well be fun and wrong and there were there were parts where i was like it was really interesting when they cut to me and my facial expressions for certain things and uh my friend jake um who's a comedian in baltimore he um in the first round with a girl next to me, the first girl who goes home, she, her answer to her question is the Salvation Army. And then like, she didn't know the answer. And I gave her a look and he texted me. He's like, wow, (laughs) it's like homophobic (laughs) Salvation Army homophobia. And I'm like, yeah, that's what that look was about. But it was also like her first question and she doesn't know the answer, which in my mind is like, well, bye. You're, (laughs) you're going home. Yeah. That's so, I mean, gosh, it's so like, 
insidious at, at the holiday time. Like how, how could you avoid that? But I mean, I, you know, whatever the pressure, I'm sure people get like, you know, there were definitely some of the questions that we were like, Oh man, I'm glad I didn't have to answer that. Cause like <laughs> being asked that really quickly, you know, especially mm-hmm. the math ones. Um, yeah. Would have, would have uh, tripped me up. Well, I uh, thought it was super fun. It was, it was, it was great to see you on there and you did really well. That's always, uh, I think, you know, the best thing to walk away and be like, well, I answered the questions right. And I tried my best and you looked great. Uh, so thank hey, you. I did. I did what I could. And I, I was kind of hoping they were going to ask me like a horror thing because that came up in my, my interview a couple times. Um, you know, they were just like, Oh, what is, you know, cause they did ask me what like my favorite horror movies were. And I'm like, Oh, well, this and that (laughs) yeah and i was kind of hoping they would say something again but they did have a they did have a bunch of horror people on the weakest link this season there was like a guy who had like a it was like a horror themed uh speed dating company or something like that and like they actually had a horror film director and someone you know all these other people so i'm sure that they were like ah well let's not ask them because we have all these people already yeah huh Interesting. That's, um, yeah, always interesting to, uh, see how that kind of stuff plays out as well. You know, when you give Mm -hmm. them, you know, information about your likes or dislikes. So, well, anyways, congrats for going on. It was lovely to see you and uh, it was good to, you know, I think, um, you know, just seeing the response has been fun for you for yeah mm-hmm. so makes me happy all right well that is yeah. the uh that's all we're going to talk about in this first section we just thought we devoted just to uh joe's weakest link experience if you have not seen it yet it is on hulu uh it'll be linked in the show notes um yay yay so we will be right back uh to continue our discussion on um black horror with ganja and hess yay Haley Piper, Patrick Lacey, S.E. Howard, Waylon Jordan, and Jeremy Herbert. Five acclaimed authors of horror and dark fiction. Their twisted tales appeared in the acclaimed horror anthology Worst Laid Plans from Grindhouse Press. Now, their tales of vacation terror are coming to the big screen in a feature film adaptation from Genre Blast Films. Five acclaimed genre filmmakers will bring these stories to life. Samantha Koyesnik, John Hale, Vanessa Yonta Wright, Michael Escobedo, and Jeremy Herbert. Worst Laid Plans. Now crowdfunding on Indiegogo. This is one vacation you'll be dying to take. (laughs) All right, welcome back. We are um, loving that we are continuing our Black Horror History Month celebration with uh, 1973's Ganja and Hess, uh, written and directed by Bill Gunn and starring Dwayne Jones of Night of the Living Dead fame and also yes. Clark. Uh, alternatively released under a um, butchered 76-minute cut called Blood Couple, um, 
also known as Black Evil, Black Vampire, Blackout, The Moment of Terror, Vampires of Harlem, and Double Possession. The film has had quite an identity uh, crisis uh, over the years. Almost lost, almost completely lost. Um, thankfully the museum of modern art had a, uh, an original work that they had kept on, um, I guess part of the collection at the request of Bill Gunn. I don't know. I'm a little com- murky about exactly how they ended up having, um, an original, uh, director's cut or however you want to uh, describe it version of the film that was restored and released on Blu-ray a few years ago and now streaming on, uh, it was on shutter for a long time. Uh, yeah. With Horror Noir, uh, when Horror Noir came out, they put up uh, a whole bunch of, uh, awesome, uh, black horror films that were discussed, you know, within the context of the, of the documentary. Uh, but it is currently streaming with Showtime along with Spike Lee's um, remake called The Sweet Blood of Jesus. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Ganja and Hess, uh, you know, it is it is a vampire film, kind of. <laughs> it's a... I mean, not kind of, it is, but it, it, it's an interesting uh, exploration of a lot of things. Uh, so let's start, as we do, with uh, your initial reaction, Joe. It reminded me of viewing films um, in uh, in my undergrad for, like, film classes. Yeah. <laughs> it was very, like... Because I remember, you know, you're in your early 20s, you you think you are like, you know, king shit of Funk Mountain when it comes to uh, rhetoric and all that stuff. And you're just like, oh, yeah, this is really deep. <laughs> and I was like, just trying to enjoy it as a film. Um, but it, it, it kind of gave off like that. It was super artsy and... Um, you know, I have I have enough uh, humility now to know that like maybe some of it went over my head, <laughs> but <laughs> but the fact that it was like it was beautiful and um, <laughs> Ganja is like the best. <laughs> she <laughs> she does not give a fuck. <laughs> um, it 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 there was a part there was something that she said that I was like, did Joshua write this? Um, <laughs> Because it was, um, it was when she calls uh, Hess and she's like, you know, um, he's like, I'll send the limousine for you um, at the airport. And he's like, I'm at the, you know, I'm at the so-and-s, I'm at the Pan-American. Pan-American. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm at the Pan-American. Pan-American. And it's like, you know, your driver will notice me. I'm valuable. I'm valuable. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was like, dang. And uh, I was like, okay, well. I don't get it, but I love her. So <laughs> I, I just kept watching and it was, it was so interesting and fascinating. And I'm curious if you have any like additional insight into like a lot of the religious elements of it, because I did notice, um, I did see the trailer and read the synopsis for the sweet blood of Jesus before I watched Ganja Ness and how like it's almost almost exactly a shot for shot line by line remake in some parts and in some parts I hear in some parts. Yeah. And, and it's like, okay, like I can understand why you would call, why you would call the film, the sweet blood of Jesus now seeing the original and knowing how much like uh, Christian religious, you know, religiosity iconography is in it. 
Um, but I was just so fascinated by that because it's like he's this um, anthropologist, you know, antiques dealer type person. And then, you know, I, that's not something that I am, I'm usually equate to like when I think of people in the academy and in on that level, I don't, and people, especially people who study um, ancient cultures or, um, you know, uh, historic cultures, I don't necessarily think of them as people being like super duper Christian. Um, so I, I thought that was really interesting, but overall, I mean, I, I, I did enjoy it. It'll probably be one of those films that like, I would love to own just to like have that part of film history. Um, but it was definitely, it was difficult at times to watch just because of how I think cerebral and, um, out of my depth I felt. Yeah, and I think that's difficult is definitely a word that I came across a few times in looking for articles and research, you know, analyzing the film. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so first of all, it's interesting that it was made a year after Blackula. I think that the producers were looking. Um, that's uh, what were the names of the producers? Kelly Jordan Enterprises. So they were hoping to kind of capitalize on that success of, you know, a black vampire film. Um, you know, they wanted something that, you know, fit with the other black exploitation films of the era. So Ganja and Hess, I think, um, kind of errone- erroneously is called a black exploitation film. Um, mm-hmm. but I don't think it really is. I, I no, think it's, it's very arty. It's very yeah, art it's house. It's very art house. And kind of what the, the, the story is, is that Bill Gunn, they gave him the money. They gave him like, $350,000 or something to make it. And, um, you know, and they're like, we want a vampire movie, blah, 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 blah. And he went, yeah, yeah, whatever. Sure. Um, great. I think he was given kind of a, a, a wide berth to, to do, um, the, to do the film. Mm-hmm. And Gunn was kind of like, well, they gave me all this money. Um, I don't want to make a, a black vampire film. I have a lot of other things I'd like to say. So fuck them. I'll do their vampire mm-hmm. thing, but I'm gonna do it my way. And he took off with the money, hired his crew, which apparently was very uh, desegregated. Lots of um, people there, according to Marlene uh, Clark, um, which I, I have to find her um, quote about that. Um, which I thought was uh, really interesting. Damn it. I thought I had it up here. Uh, one moment. Um, so the woman who plays uh, Gonja, Gonja. Mm-hmm. Uh, she said that um, he was very imaginative. The film crews had been traditionally all white, yet here was a crew that was totally mixed and their devotion to Bill and to what he was trying to say was really quite impressive. So kind of go runs away, makes this film, turns it in and they're like, well, that's not what we fucking wanted. So they, uh, it, it screened at the 1973, uh, Cannes film festival, uh, oh, to, wow. a standing, to a standing ovation. It was, um, even called one of the best films of the decade, um, by who said that, um, reception. So it was screened at the 12th international critics week at Cannes film festival. And the Amsterdam news hailed it as the most important, uh, black produced film since sweet sweetbacks badass song <laughs> oh wow that was kind really of, um, um and then sorry i was looking for the other that's high praise sweet sweetbacks badass song is um is uh, one of the like most important black exploitation movies 
Um, yeah, sorry, I was trying. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it was kind of given this like high praise from, you know, the art, art world and their and the film critics, you know, that that sort of realm. And then it comes back to the US where it's shown here and it was like pulled the very next day. It was given tons of bad reviews. Um, you know, people just didn't get it. They didn't understand. Um, again, um, from Marlene Clark, uh, who plays Ganja, uh, she says that when I read the reviews, I thought they didn't get it. Uh, many critics believe that black people make very straightforward, literal movies. So Bill was really an enigma to them. They just did not understand what he had done. It never found much of an audience, but a number of industry people saw it, especially in New York. So I was offered other movies. <laughs> um, you know, so, it, so again, it's a sort of very unique film where kind of like with, with, with Blackula, uh, even though Blackula does fit in a little bit more with some of the black exploitation films of, of the time, you know, um, they're, you know, he's very erudite and he's wealthy and he's successful and he's, uh, you know, this anthropologist, this is Dr. Hess Green, again, played by Dwayne Jones. Um, and, you know, so he's kind of, they're sort of breaking that, that mold. He's not, um, his wealth doesn't, appear to come from any sort of illegal means. He's not tied to drugs or prostitution or, you know, other criminal activities. Uh, you know, he's just a man trying to live his life, you know, so kind of outside of, um, you know, the confines of regular morality. (laughs) Well, well, yes, but well, as the, as the film goes on that, that sort of change, well, that's kind of the discussion, which I guess we'll Mm -hmm. get into when we, um, when we kind of talk about that, but just kind of separating it from the other films at the time, you know, it's not very, it's just, it's not like a black exploitation film in the, in that, that definition that we were operating on, you know, in our, in our last episode. Mm -hmm. Um, so the interesting thing is, is like, yeah, what, when you step back and you, you watch the whole film and it is, it is kind of like a fever dream to me. I really, really enjoyed it. I cannot wait to watch it again. Um, I am uh, absolutely going to get this on Blu-ray so that I have a physical copy of it. Uh, because I, this is exactly the kind of like vampire movie I like, you know, it's dreamy, it's cerebral, it's weird. Um, you know, it has some interesting conversations going on about like, you know, African history. He's studying this particular, uh, tribe of blood drinkers, uh, the, uh, the Myrthians, Myrthians or Myrthians, I think maybe. Uh, it's their dagger he has that he gets stabbed with, you know, his, um, which is, uh, the director that's, uh, Bill Gunn himself playing George Maida. Oh, the one who kills himself. Yeah. Yeah. That, Mm -hmm. um, you know, so he's studying, you know, they're, so there's this like direct link to like African history and this tribe that he's, you know, Mm -hmm. um, talking about and, and analyzing and, and then subsequently haunted by, because like he hears that he sees like that priestess woman, you yeah, know, she's like a queen. Yeah. 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 So it's kind of giving this whole, um, you know, like very, very interesting, um, mythology to vampirism that we haven't really seen, you know, especially at this time when like Dracula and this sort of very white European, kind of version of vampirism was, you know, the vampire, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. you know, so it's kind of, we're given this really radically different, um, 
something that we hadn't seen before and and a transformation we haven't seen before either not like that 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 a, that a that a uh, an object could create vampirism yeah mm-hmm. i thought was also very interesting um you know and that you know it's sort of that um um I don't know. It kind of, it reminded me of like Byzantium and like the cave and you go to this cave and that, you know, yes. like they stab you and you die. And then, yeah, absolutely. I was like, uh, thank you for bringing that up. Cause I was like, this is more like Byzantium and mm-hmm. you know, we're, we've seen so many films at this point, especially with as far as vampires go. And it's like, anytime you, anytime you uh, have an, a fresh take on that, it's always um, interesting and interest, interesting to see. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I was, I was excited by kind of the different, you know, the idea here of like how they become vampires. It kind of happens accidentally, obviously um, with George, um, you know, and again, I, what I also really like is that the, the film is, he is aware, like he's not, he doesn't feel above society when he's having that conversation with with george you know with meta who's trying to like hang himself and you know mm-hmm. and there's a noose hanging between the two of them you know which i yeah. thought was very powerful imagery where he's having this conversation and this man's yeah. thinking about hanging himself like there's just you know a lot that can be unpacked in that in that conversation yeah. these two black men who are obviously both because this guy has been brought on to be like his research assistant so obviously he's also educated he's also kind of must be coming from you know possibly a similar background and you're kind of yeah. seeing the different same erudite, you know, <laughs> yeah, education. You know, so to have that hanging between them and then they have a whole conversation about, you know, um, Hess, you know, is like, dude, you cannot kill yourself on my property. Like, do you not realize that's going to cause me all kinds of problems? Like, yeah, it's like, I'm the only black man for miles. Right. He does not (laughs) want to have any reason to be engaging with the police, um, especially because they're going to be white. And he just doesn't Mm -hmm. want that kind of that drama, regardless of his wealth, regardless of, you know, his education, he's well aware. And that's pretty much... You know, there's not a lot of engagement with whiteness in this film other than though that like conversation. I mean, the film is largely a black cast. It's a black story. It's, you know, again, we've separated vampirism from white European. Like it's not Mm -hmm. the enslavement narrative that we got with Blackula, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and the metaphor for that. This is more of a metaphor for addiction. Um, And especially when you look, I mean, I bet watching this, now or even having being able to have seen it like in the 80s and 90s you know when you when like addiction conversations were really enormous um you know i i think there's i don't know there there's just there's a lot going on there with with making this yeah. a vampirism um addiction metaphor you know yeah, that's what and- bill wanted to talk about Exactly. And, and, you know, cause we always, we always talk about like vampirism is like a curse more than it is a blessing, you know, the eternal life and youth and all that stuff and the vitality, but drinking of blood and, and to hear it portrayed as like an addiction was really interesting. Um, because like, I think the only time I've seen it as like an addiction is, uh, the people who are addicted to, uh, V in, um, true blood. Yeah. But they're not, um, they're not vampires. They're like, um, you know, regular mortal humans who happen to be addicted to uh, vampire blood. Um, so yeah, it was, it's just really interesting to see that and um, to have that conversation. What what 
where I started to lose it a little bit is okay. in the in the different dialogues, like in the different bouts of conversation. So like when uh, Hess's assistant it talks to him, you know, that little story he tells about Amsterdam. And then um and then like the whole thing at the church towards the end. And um I mean, I think the only time I didn't truly lose myself was like Ganja telling Hess, like, you know, talking about her life and how she was always going to look out for herself. Yeah. Um, eventually, I think it's right before they get married. Um, but yeah, like the dialogue was, cause I was just trying to figure out, like, there was no exposition for the most part in it. There was no, like, we're not, you're not saying like, I got this dagger from here and that's what this dagger does. And, you know, like, like in, um, like in freaky where it's like, (laughs) this dagger says that this is what it does. There's no Spanish teacher there to tell you exactly what you need to do. So, yeah. So they're like, right. You know, they're hidden behind a bed and the, then it shows George in the bathtub doing his thing. Then he commits suicide. Then it goes back and Hess is on the bed. And then he stands up, mm-hmm. he's looking and he's rubbing his like chest in the mirror for like stab wounds. So mm-hmm. we just infer what happened. You know, you don't see it. We don't see him rise from the dead and the wounds covered died. in blood or. Yeah. yeah. And then he just comes into the room and then he like crouches down and starts to drink the, the pooling blood, you know? So it's like, it is very. The film is very art house in that way, where it is kind yeah. of these interesting scenes that sort of happen there. You're right. There isn't a lot of exposition. There's not a lot of explanation. Um, it feels like a fever dream. It feels like, I mean, watching it, I'm like, I feel kind of high, you know, like there is this part of it mm-hmm. that's warping and playing with, you know, your experience of the film. Well, uh, the, in the beginning, the title, you know, that those, uh, title cards in the beginning, um, the text where it's like, you know, he gets stabbed three times, once for the Father, once for the Son, once for the Holy Ghost. I thought he was already turned. Ah, uh, yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, no, I, I think that that, the, Meta is suffering from, like, paranoid delusions. He's, mm-hmm. obvi- you know, schizophrenia. So he's got, he's already kind of obviously... Yeah, he got problems. Yes, yeah, he's he's got a lot going on. <laughs> That's the title of this episode is He Got Problems. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and again, because it's not all laid down and explained, you know, we're just sort of here, you know, to try to pull meaning from that, you know, and what is being mm-hmm. said about, you know, again, it is sort of like the two different lives, like they're kind of a mirror for each other of like, mm-hmm. you know, even though they pursued the same sort of work and anthropology and, and um, possibly both researching the same sort of like African tribes and their identity, you know, to have them be two very different uh, experiences of life, you know, cause this other man is so ill, um, you know, and is suicidal and, mm-hmm. you know, so uh, I'm not exactly it's not clear why he's tries to kill him other than like some sort of psychotic episode. Um, yeah. And then of course the religious part that gets wrapped up in, and that's something that, so um, this is from a page uh, citizen Dame, the intersection of filmdom and feminism, Dame struck Ganja and Hess. And so um, kind of throwing out a few different ways the film can be interpreted. So um, Hess's attempt to reject his vampirism Uh, could also be seen as a rejection of his ancestry uh, Mm -hmm. for, you know, 
for living in a white society and succeeding in a white patriarchal capitalist heteropatriarchy. Um, you know, he's wealthy. He's, um, you know, doing, you know, he says I'm, you know, I'm the only black man in this neighborhood. So obviously he's not living, you know, where other, you know, his community quote unquote is that is his, community. he has, he, he has black that. servants. Yeah. Right. Yes, exactly. He employs, which, you know, the film cuts off a lot that like the heads of the Butler, like you don't see him, he's not a person. Mm-hmm. Um, so that like, that's a very interesting, you know, I'm wondering like what's going on there. What is bill, um, you know, what is Gunn trying to say, the director writer trying to say about, about black servitude or like who, mm-hmm. who, who's being critiqued in that? Or is it just yeah. an accident of the film? You know, is it just that, yeah. you know, the, they didn't get enough shots. I mean, he's shown, you see his face, but there's like that whole extended sequence where Ganja and Hess are talking and they're very rude to him. You know, she's very dismissive. Oh yeah, when they go grocery shopping and right, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. But then they sit down to have tea and you know, or coffee. And you, do you want coffee? She's like, no, and you know, just very like rude. And his head is cut the whole time. Like you, he's not. He's just a body. He's mm-hmm. just a bo- a mm-hmm. service. Um, you know. Uh, so I'm, I'm, yeah. It's very interesting. Like what's being said there about identity and about like you know Hess's role in that. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. you know, again, there's not like exactly clear answers. Um, and then it goes on. So the, the, it also goes on to say, you know, rejecting his ancestry for the forms of organized religion, uh, that his vampirism is in direct parallel to drug addiction, mm-hmm. uh, something that not even Hess's wealth can protect him from, um, that his wealth itself is a form of vampirism as he primarily preys upon those at the outskirts of society and coincidentally those most often focused on in black exploitation films, including prostitutes, pimps, mm-hmm. um, and that vampirism is a form of revenge against a society that will always treat even the wealthiest, most well-educated black man as a threat. Um, and then of course, that's uh, such a good insight. Yeah, I mean, and it, you know, and again, the, the film is aware of that, you know, he, he has, co- you know, conversations about that. And then um, here, the introduction of Ganja late in the film also alters the conversation as the film deals with her presence as a powerful black woman who finds love and an openness of expression via vampirism. Um, you know, so it's a multifaceted narrative with no single interpretation. So a film lover's dream, <laughs> which to <laughs> some extent I agree with, like sitting and watching it, I'm like, this is, there is a lot going on. Like you could write easily, uh, you know, a book on Ganja and Hess and what it's talking about and, and expanding on, you know, the, the roles of like, you know, Africa within this film, um, you know, and then of course the roles of modernity and capitalism and racism. And, you know, even though like it's, you know, not exactly what it's about either, you know, there, there's Mm -hmm. just, there's a lot, there's a lot going on. Um, so I was curious, um, because you were raised Catholic as we've talked about how you like, did you have a response? Cause like the Catholicism is, uh, you know, has this like preoccupation with blood drinking and cannibalism, <laughs> uh, that I find really fascinating, you know, because then you have the church, you have the crosses and this, you know, a, mm-hmm. which, to me like a cross it's, uh, you know, it's such a representation of torture, you know, and it's like yeah. people wear it around their neck. People love the cross. It's this holy yeah. object that this, 
you know, according to their mythology, this horrific death occurred on, (laughs) Um, you know, and then obviously, you know, we eat the blood of Christ or we eat the body of Christ. We drink the blood of Christ. There's just a lot of that kind of going on. So I I think that, 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 that religion plays a very interesting role in this. And I was curious what kind of what you felt as somebody. Sure. Well, it, it made me think, I mean, it did make me think about like the, um, the Catholic, uh, specifically the Roman Catholic, uh, um, conception of what Eucharist is. Right. So you, you know, in the, it, it basically like in Roman Catholic, te- this is me putting my catechism hat on, uh, the yeah, Roman please. Catholic teaching of Eucharist is that, um, Roman Catholics, uh, we believe in the, tr- or we See, it's hard to shake. <laughs> uh, Roman Catholics <laughs> believe in the true presence. Um, in that, like at the moment that the uh, bread and wine are consecrated, that they truly do become um, the body, uh, the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, and which is which is what distinguishes Catholic Eucharist from all other Christian Protestant forms of Eucharist. Yeah. Um, in that it's like, we are not doing it because it is symbolic. Like we're doing it in a way to, um, I believe that the, in, in the Catholic mass, it's like, you know, Jesus said, do this in, in the Bible, it says, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Um, but like the Jewish translation of in, like, it's to like make present now. So it's like, well, let me give you my body and my flesh now. And also this adds more into the, idea that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb that, you know, in order for us to be saved, that he had to die for our sins. Um, and you know, what do you do with a lamb? You eat it. Like, (laughs) so, so yeah. So, I mean, like it did bring up those concepts and, you know, this is just something that is so like baked in and they're really, um, they're really, at least on my part was like, there was no further investigation of like, you know, this is cannibalism or ritual cannibalism in that way. Um, I did find it interesting that like, we're not like it's taking place in what looks like a kind of like Western Roman Catholic church, almost like this big cathedral, but it's like a black church service. Yeah. Um, Which I thought was like very cool and how that that's kind of all being muddled up. And then the discussions, um, about like, you know, the having like a Christian service for your wedding. And like, I forget exactly when, but like there were some conversations about like the blood of Christ and, and, you know, being saved by the blood. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, like it did bring up those feelings, but it's just so interesting because it's like, it's, um, you know, religion is its own addiction in a way. Right. And it's, it's, it's its own, um, it provides its own addiction and, and again, like, and we also like assuming that like that is a good addiction as opposed to (laughs) other addictions. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is the, you know, I I, I do think people are like, well, you know, better, you know, better the tenets and, you know, sort of cultishness of AA than Mm -hmm. drugs, you know, than whatever your drug of choice is. So I I can't, Hmm. you know, I don't know. I mean, that's a whole, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> well, yeah. Cause I was going to say, cause like even in like AA and when you're working your steps and all that stuff, right. It's like, you have to find your higher power. Like, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, higher power could literally mean like 
religion or it could mean like i think one of my friends said that his higher power is like his mother right um and he thinks about like you know if i'm gonna do this will it make my mother proud and yeah i within the context of ganjin hess though like this this christian religiosity you know again i wish that um bill gunn was still alive i think he died in 89 or 90 um so before the film was kind of rediscovered and heralded uh, you know, I wish he was here to answer some questions because I'm very curious about like what, what is being said? Like, I, I wonder about his faith um, mm-hmm. because so in the film, I don't know if you listen to the soundtrack, like if you listen to the words of the song, I always have the captions on. So the yeah, song I had the captions on for some of it. Yeah. Yeah. So the songs, the one, one of the songs in the beginning of the film kind of, tells the story in a way about like the this tribe way back then that were blood drinkers and and you know they had to wait millennia for you know christ to be born to save them you know Mm -hmm. that was that was kind of the story uh in the song and um i just thought that was so here this is from um Oh man, it's way up there. So you'll just have to look in the <laughs> in the show notes. But ejumpcut.org um, has this. Where'd it go? The verbal audio organization of these sequences reinforces. No, sorry, that's not it. Um. <laughs> uh... So from the pre-Christian era to a Christian era. So looking at the history, this, uh, this African tribe, presumably in order to achieve true happiness. In this sense, such a narration places the African tribe at the remotest in history and the least aware of God. In their godless world, the Africans in the film seemingly live only like vampires. As the song of the soundtrack states, they are unaware that the blood of the thing is the true blood, and that only Christ's blood guarantees everlasting life. Consequently, they are cursed for drinking each other's blood. Uh, So, looking at Hess, you know, his problem seemingly derives from failing to accept Christian theology. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even though he's born in the Christian era, he is um, uh, fascinated or absorbed with this quote-unquote, primitive African era. He surrounds himself with African icons and artifacts. And uh, as it goes on, he begins to drink human blood to live as this tribe that he's studying. Uh, You know, so... You know, when he goes to... After he meets Ganja and they're kind of, you know, oh, this is so much fun to look at us. We're drinking blood and we're living forever and we're living the high life. And then he has sort of that crisis of like, you know, he wants to die in in good graces, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, this eternal richness, uh, you know, on earth is a, it stands as a violation against Christ and against God. So he decides to kill himself and um, or, you know, to be healed from the vampirism and die. And, uh, you know, go to God and go to his glory as a good, quote unquote, person, man. Um, but it's, <laughs> it's, is that, is that the interpretation we're supposed to get? You know, watching Ganja and Hess, do we leave with, a, with the feeling, is that really, is that what Gunn is trying to say? That like, hmm. thankfully we evolved and we moved on and we found God and we found Christianity and that it saved us from our wickedness. Um, I, 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 
I'm not saying you have to answer. It's yeah. just, it's a question put out, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, it, here's the thing, right? It's like when you, when you think about Christianity and especially its role, Christianity as the like big stick of imperialism and colonialism. Right. So it's difficult because it's like, and, and I deal with this like being, being from a predominantly Roman Catholic um, location where um, that was like colonized by people in the name of King and God, you know, it's, it's the thing. It's like, you know, there are so many um, devout Roman Catholics, Sangwam, in my family, and um, many people I know, a lot of the life is kind of centered around that. But there, but then, like, if you think about it, and like, you know, this is this true blessing. You know, this this faith is a is a very true blessing for a lot of people. But you know, it also is in order to have that blessing, you have to completely ignore or. Um, just like not be aware of period the kind of violent history that Catholicism Christianity played in our colonization. Right. (laughs) Um, Which it's, it's always, that's always so fascinating and it's, I'm paying attention to like, you know, the independence movement on Guam and independence movement, other places. And um, it's very interesting to kind of see that, um, and then even with like, you know, let's, if we can translate that to, uh, the black experience, um, the black church, black Christian tradition, um, is very interesting because like, you know, it, I mean, black Christian tradition is very multifaceted because it, it has, there are those elements of like, you know, colonialism, uh, biblical justifications for slavery, but then there's also like you know this very rich and deep history of like um, uh, spreading the gospel in like uh, Ethiopia and like the the seat of like Black Christian tradition there um, is very rooted and it has nothing to do with you know colonialism or imperialism, but just like pure proselytization um, and spreading of the gospel. So I, th- I think those are also things that to think about as well. And for me, it's difficult for me and with my biases, bias C's, I should say, uh, and all of the way biases, biases, I don't know. Biases. Don't. Yeah. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I, to kind of like, to, to have someone who come the, who have someone who on the surface is like a person of color, you know, a B, you know, BIPOC person who is very like much about who is, who is very fervent and very uh, strong in their religious faith. Um, while at the same time, like seeing how they negotiate that with their identity as a, as a, someone who has been affected by colonialism and imperialism. Yeah, it's definitely something that I would love to uh, expand on with, you know, anyone who could really speak to that. Obviously, I cannot, you know, I am an atheist. I do not, you know, I I do, I myself personally sit back and wonder, you know, I have friends of all stripes, you know, who are Christians. As as a queer person, I I don't understand how queer people can find... um, 
you know, peace or, um, you know, a community within, uh, Christianity, um, you know, something that has been so often used against us, um, and remains, uh, you know, that way. Um, but to each their own, if they believe at the, at the, uh, you know, at the, the foundation of it, that there is this messianic mm-hmm. message of Christ, um, or if it's, you know, just, uh, a good guide of a way to live, you know, be good mm-hmm. to people and, you know, and, you know, spread that kind of message, you know, Hey, good, you know, that's, that's, that's great, but it does. I, I definitely do stand in, you know, confusion. Um, but you know, if people can find peace, then awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, like, that's great um, if it, you know, it, that's it, the it thing it's like if it's working for someone right if it's working for you or you are actively having those conversations with yourself and um you know i i it's interesting because it's like i i am i feel like i'm a constant i'm still i think for the last maybe 10 years i've been saying that i'm on this like journey of faith um trying to figure out where it is that i fit in um, and especially for queer people who, um, had this conversation many times, you know, queer people who have, um, seen or been hurt by religion in general and, you know, Christianity, especially, uh, to kind of see how that, um, affects them and changes the, their, you know, perception and, um, I don't know. I think I, I've, I've gotten to a point where I'm just like too curious <laughs> and I'm too, uh, I'm too curious. I'm too, um, I, I'm, I'm not just willing to kind of suspend disbelief, you know? Um, but I don't know. This is interesting, interesting stuff we're talking about. Here. <laughs> well, and again, I mean, this is you know, the power of horror to bring up these sorts of questions. Um, you know, yeah. and again, it's just an interesting, uh, perspective to take, you know, within this film of, you know, again, I get that like gun is talking about addiction, you know, even mm-hmm. bigger than vampirism, you know, and so a lot of people do turn to the church, they turn to their community. So him leaving this world, you know, where he has found success, but at a certain cost, um, and mm-hmm. returning to his community, going back to the church, you know, um, and, and, giving himself over to that, even though Mm -hmm. it means his death, but he obviously, you know, is trading it for, you know, an eternal peace. Um, I, I just think is a very, um, it's an interesting story, you know, and it plays with a lot of iconography. Uh, and Mm -hmm. I really enjoy that. Um, so just some, there's again, there's so much more we could talk about Ganjin Hess. I mean, I could easily see us. This is the kind of film I would love to show to an audience and discuss. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, there's, there's a lot going on. It's, um, you know, it's very, very beautiful. I think there are moments, there mm-hmm. are some stunning shots after he, um, after Hess stabs Ganja to transform her. And he's mm-hmm. like crouched over her body the lighting and just the way this it's like a Renaissance painting. It's so gorgeous. Um, just the way it's lit. And then it switches and he's like standing in the corner, staring at her, like, you know, just the way there's just a lot of scenes like that, that are just so beautifully filmed. I love a lot of the, 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 uh, shots of, you know, when it goes back in time into his, like Mm -hmm. 
these sort of memories, ancestral memories he's having of this tribe. Like that, they're just really interesting. Um, overusing that word, that's but <laughs> interesting. Interesting. Everything is interesting. Um, you know, just beautiful shots that are that are just lovely to look at. You know, so it has a lot mm-hmm. of that. I think there's some of the you know. So one of the things with like. Um, black exploitation films and exploitation films in general is this like lurid violence and lurid sexuality mm-hmm. and everybody's naked and it's very pornographic feeling. This is not like that. Their like love scene is very beautiful. Oh, the one where um, the other guy that comes in that comes to be a victim for her mm-hmm. um, after they're married, that whole sequence is so the light on their skin and just the way the camera moves around them and they move, it's just very diaphanous. And I don't know. I just, the shots of it were just so beautiful. And then when he's all covered in blood, the way that the angle of the camera, I don't know. It was just, I'm like, this is so pretty to look at. Um, despite mm-hmm. the content, um, you know, I just diaphanous. Ooh. Well, it's like that kind of filminess of it. Yeah. Know? No, I just, I, what a word. I love that. Um, <laughs> it was just so, yeah, I just really, I really liked looking at this movie. This is another one like, oh my gosh, I could easily put this film on and like play music over during dinner. You know what I mean? Like, cause it's just mm-hmm. to me like this moving painting. Um, yeah. There's just a lot of very interesting scenes that I could see being like, wait, what was that? Pause that. What is this? What's happening here? You know? Um, it'd be a great conversation. Uh, so like, that's kind of a stray observation. Um, um, I want to talk about, um, why vampire couples are like a thing. So like, we've watched the hunger, we've yeah. watched this, um, the, um, oh my God, what's that movie called? I've not seen it, but there's that movie with, um, Tom Hiddleston and Tilda Swinton. Oh, Only Lovers Left Alive. Only Lovers Left Alive. I don't know what, uh, I don't want to get your thoughts about that. I'm like, what is it that we're trying to say about like this idea of like vampirism, but also from the lens of like a couple and, you know, the, I mean, like, it, it's always, and it's always, like, a problematic thing. There's always some sort of, you know, interesting reason why they are together or or preying on each other or something. Like, you know, are, are they saying that we're not supposed to be with one person for all eternity? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting that that's, like, the heteronormativity of it. You know, when you, with, like, what you're bringing up is sort of like, yeah, these, like, cup, you know, you have to, like, find a mate and live with that person forever, you know? Mm-hmm. And I do sort of... I don't know. I think that it's interesting. And, you know, I, God, I'm so angry that I keep saying that word. Cause that's not, <laughs> now I'm too aware of it, but like with Ganjan Hess, you know, he brings in this like young guy for her to like prey on and, you know, and he's watching. And so that is kind of very outside of that norm, mm-hmm. you know? Um, yeah. I think there's like, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, we could definitely do like a whole, series probably just discussing like what it what's being said by having couples um mm-hmm. you know i do think there is something there to like oh everybody wants to pair up and find a maid and there's like this inherent loneliness in being a vampire you know so you're looking for somebody to join yeah. you and you know so you find that special person and that's the one but i you know i i think all of the like i think that says more about like who's making you know, these sorts of films, I definitely prefer my vampires, as I've said before, to kind of be untethered to human ideas of morality. It just doesn't make sense. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, heterosexuality, monogamous heterosexuality does not make sense to me uh, for vampires. Um, I just think if you're going to live thousands of years, you're going to be... Well, and as I've said before, I do believe some people are straight and some people are gay, but I think most people, or at least a large chunk of people, without mm. any of the social morality nonsense, you know, without any, if they didn't have anything that they worried about being judged for whoever they wanted to kiss or lick on or get naked with, um, I think a lot more people would explore their sexuality in a lot of different arenas, you know. Um consensually you know amongst all of that is inferred um you know i'm not i'm not trying to advocate for anything untoward i'm just mean that you know adult people uh who consent to uh (laughs) well i I mean you know maybe like this century you're by (laughs) well and then not even like that it's just yeah that just over you know over a thousand years it's like well you know i just don't see how you wouldn't be like yeah let's try I mean, like, yeah, at at a certain point, it's just like, what else is going to keep you interested, right? So, you know. Yeah, you know, and again, I mean, I, you know, who knows? I mean, we're not immortal. We, I mean, I I would think, gosh, oh my gosh, if I had time to read every single book ever published that I wanted to, like, that'd be amazing. Like, I don't see how you could ever really get bored. um, But I'm also the type, like, I have, you know, a very kind Mm -hmm. of queerness as well so you know that's me putting my own thing on it you know so if so if some man writes this movie and he's like oh yeah i wish i could find a one woman to love my whole life and then live eternally with her i don't know if that's what gun is is doing with this film Mm -hmm. um at all see see joshua what you're saying is that you know if you were just like this like you know thousand year old vampire it's like okay so like the middle ages you're a top and then <laughs> the Renaissance, you're a bottom. And then, you know, you just go back and forth, you know, depending on right. the, the time yeah. period. I just couldn't imagine being tethered to any mm-hmm. of that kind of feeling. Um, yeah, but, especially yeah, because you, the, the futility of like, of relationships when you live, when you outlive everyone that you've ever known, right? Yeah, and unless you're making new vampires, but you know. Yeah. I, I just, I don't know. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know. That's a whole other, that's just such an interesting digression. Um, <laughs> again, there's so much more to talk about. We've already been talking for over an hour. So um, I just, I guess some real quick other things. Um, the soundtrack, I freaking love the music of this film. I went and I found it on vinyl um, because I wanted to own it. It's by Sam Wayman. Uh, he just, so just for some awesome trivia, he was the brother of, um, hold on one moment. Well, I wanted to find, yeah, Eunice Wayman, uh, who became Nina Simone. Oh, uh, so that was, uh, so his, her brother wrote this. Oh, uh, young, gifted, and black music. Yes. Which did you see that in the in the film? Under like sitting at the table or sitting on the floor was a copy of that. Was Nina Simone's "Gifted in Black," which I thought was mm-hmm. really awesome early on uh, in the film. Uh, there's kind of a really nice static shot of it, so you really see it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, which I think is again a great like conversation about Hess, like just kind of dropped in there that he's obviously gifted in black, um, and then Sam. Wayman doing the uh, 
enjoyed the soundtrack. Uh, so they did release it, a uh, special edition of vinyl for Record Store Day in 2018. There was only a thousand copies worldwide released on uh, this red vinyl. And I found one. So <laughs> I'm going to. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I have that coming uh, because I just thought the soundtrack was amazing and weird and beautiful and really cutting edge and ahead of its time. Uh, I, I don't see. Uh, Jordan Peele must have seen Ganjin Hess and heard the soundtrack because there's lots of like that kind of influence there um, with with the uh, soundtrack of Get Out, I think, um, mm-hmm. kind of mixing these like chants with kind of, you know, um, that very- motif of like, you know, that kind of being like part of the like non-diegetic sound like you know or like even like he 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 you can obviously see that he or someone whoever's in it hears the chanting um and is being brought there like it's it's really good use of uh um really good use of sound and music and yeah it's kind of like when he's hungering for blood that's when you know like and that gets mm-hmm. the, it just gets louder and louder in his head and like you, you have the to go primal out. call of yeah. the ancients the ancestors yeah. yeah exactly um i just thought was yeah i just i just loved it so much so i'm like is this on vinyl anywhere i have to own it and i found a copy and i, I was very happy about that so that was like another stray observation um, everybody's some kind of freak. I love that quote. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, I should have said that when we were talking about the freakiness of vampires. <laughs> um, something else that came up that I want to kind of further explore as we go along, because I'm not sure if Ganja exactly fits, but there's an idea in, um, oh, so obviously in Men, Women, and Chainsaws, uh, we have uh, the concept of the final girl, is is mm-hmm. uh is put forth and we've obviously been talking about final girls for years now because of it and final boys and um so in in the horror noir book i thought it was very interesting that um again that fucking word uh coleman puts forth this idea of the enduring wo- women enduring mm-hmm. women and she's kind of a contrast not exactly a contrast, but, you know, sort of to the final girl narrative of the, of the role that black women play in horror films. Um, especially, um, you know, the, well, here, let me just read. So, um, the enduring woman, unlike the quote unquote, asexual final girl often fights not only for her own life, but also on behalf of men. Um, you know, and then she she does not set aside her sexuality or have a masculine name or possess her own masculine weaponry. Rather, she has lips and hips, but no chainsaw. Um, you know, enduring women get called in to battle, you know, to save uh, men, to save a former love from, you know, an attacking you know, figure. Um and then, so it says about Ganja and Hess, which I guess she does kind of fit, but, um, you know, she's sort of like a wicked, enduring woman. Um, so, Not necessarily on the side of, like, traditional good. Right. right. Obviously she's like fully ready to go all the way there. But the, 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 one of the, the features of the enduring woman that I do really like, and that we'll have to uh, continue discussing in, uh, in our next episode 
is that the reason, like the final girl being generally white and representing like whiteness defeats the enemy and life returns to normal. You know, she goes back to the suburbs. She goes back to high school. She goes back to work. She get you know, goes back to fine doing whatever it is. She's going until to the do. sequel. Yes. Right. <laughs> exactly. With the rest of her life. But it, within the context of like Halloween, you know, mm-hmm. the original, you know, if that was it, like, you know, we assume Laurie Strode gets better and goes back to, obviously we know now, but just, analyzing as the single film. Uh, but typically, you know, the final girl defeats the monster and she goes back. But the enduring woman in the context of black films and black horror, you know, fights for against the monster, the invading forces, and then returns to a life of, you know, having to deal with sexism and racism and, you know, all these other, you know, social ills that are discussed within the context of, of these films when they're made and they have these sorts of lead, you know, characters. Uh, so I just love that concept being brought up. I mean, with, with, um, with Ganja, obviously, she is a truly enduring woman, uh, you know, in the context of, um, like, um, to go back to uh, Byzantium, where she says, we endure, we just live, we just continue to live. And, you know, whatever that means for her, obviously, Ganja now, she had, you know, a husband who died, and then another husband who died, but left her a lot of wealth and power and made her an immortal creature. She becomes like um, Blaylock in the hunger almost, mm-hmm. um, you know, kind of free from all of that. Uh, so again, we're not, you know, we don't know too much about how she fits, you know, but now you have to imagine now she's the only black woman living in this neighborhood. She's replaced Hess yeah. uh, and that her, that her life continues on. Yes. In some ways, great, but also, you know, kind of playing that same role of like having to be aware of, um, white, the danger of whiteness. Um, yeah. you know, but also threat. being more equipped, like based on that beautiful monologue she gives about taking care of herself and always getting, right. you know what I mean? Like there, she's definitely now, I mean, it's, it's sad to say, but it's like, she's the one who is stronger and is actually more suited for this life than Hess was. Right. Yes. And again, we can, you know, do a whole other episode of analyzing the motivations behind each character. I just kind of wanted to introduce that topic because we are going to discuss it more um, as we as we go along uh, here. But it first came up in the book in in relation to in uh, to Ganja. Uh, to some degree. So um, other than that, I was, uh, you know, the music, I already said that. <laughs> I just, I keep going back to it because I really, really enjoyed the soundtrack. Um, there were just, Joshua, did you like the music? Psychedelic. Yeah. You know, exactly. Did I enjoy <laughs> it? I don't know. Uh, Jeffrey came in a couple times to look like, what is this? What is happening here? Um <laughs> And then I was telling him about it. I'm like, you really should sit down and watch it. Like, this was like, you know, I told him all the can, you know, just all the trivia around it. And mm-hmm. he was like, oh, yeah. Like, yeah, we should definitely have a showing of this. Actually, I should show it in the backyard with the, with the group. <gasps> oh. Do a, round, do a round table discussion. Um, so that was Ganja and Hess, again, 1973. Um, just, I, I really highly recommend that people watch it. It is bizarre it is frustrating at times because it's not this 
clear lineal linear film as as we said it doesn't have a ton of exposition it's not telling you all the time how to think about what you're seeing on the screen mm-hmm. you know it's just a life portrayed you know it just this is this is a story about you know addiction and about history and you know a lot things yeah. going on it definitely makes sense that it was in the museum of modern art because yeah I could imagine going to this, um, which I love. I've gone. I, it, it reminded me. We used to, when I lived in Ohio, go every year to this like queer film festival, and it was like things like this, you know, kind mm-hmm. of like um, there's a film, Wild Tigers. I have known that's very artsy, very painterly at times, and you're like, what is happening? What is what is this story exactly? It's kind of loose, you know. It's about a boy. This is like, oh, it's about a vampire, kind of, <laughs> um, you know. Uh, so I could imagine having gone to like MoMA and set in the dark and watch this film and then like talked about it over wine with other people. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It has that kind of feel very artsy. Dear listener, it's artsy diaphanous and interesting. Right. That's what we (laughs) do know about it. Uh, So I highly recommend it. I, you know, as I do all the films that we talk about on here, but this, this one was, um, yeah, I'm very, very glad it's survived you know, it, it, all the issues that it, that it had uh, very, very excited that we weren't left with just the 78 minute version of it. That's kind of radically different than, than what we got. Um, you know, it's just a beautiful, weird vampire movie. So yeah. check it out um, again, check out the Hulu, the weakest link, the latest episode, season one, episode 13, something about ghosting people. Um, yes. It's also on Peacock. There you go. Joe knows all the places you can see his beautiful face. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And we will see you next week. We're going to be continuing this conversation. So stay tuned, dear listener. Good night, Joe. Good night, Joshua. Fright School is produced by Joshua Napier and Joe Farron. Our intro was edited by Davey Boy Productions. Our logo was designed by Jamie Channel Guzman. Episodes are edited and engineered by Joe Farron. Fright School is produced in terrifyingly beautiful San Diego, California. listening to the Geekscape Network.